0: current global pandemic is worsening gender inequalities, and it risks compromising decades of progress in international development.
1: The challenge starts in education, even the economic challenge starts in education. When the kids come back, then the growth will be in a low number than the price. You need local governance
2: to have the capacity to further all of these initiatives,
3: to protect democratic space is really also protecting women's space and women's right
4: this is forum fedcast episode 6 gender equality building a more equal world Gender equality is now firmly situated at the top of the Sustainable Development Agenda. The international community has established the empowerment of women and girls as a priority in its development assistance efforts. In 2018-2019, the 13 member countries of the OECD Development Assistance Committee, or DAC, committed US$47 billion in bilateral aid to programs which integrate gender equality as a significant or mainstreamed policy objective. Another $5.6 billion was allocated to projects where gender equality and women's empowerment was the principal objective.
5: Globally, more money is now committed to development assistance initiatives with gender equality as an objective than ever before. Development assistance funding for gender equality is spread over a range of different sectors. The largest share of the bilateral aid committed by OECD DAC members in 2018-2019, amounting to $10 billion, was allocated to projects focusing on the area of government and civil society. It is anticipated that the proportion of money spent on development assistance projects with a gender equality focus
4: will increase further in coming years. This commitment provides a real opportunity to push forward gender equality as a critical component of sustainable development. Donors are supporting bi- and multilateral initiatives that aim to address gender barriers and foster attitudinal change all around the world, including the forum's own Empowering Women for Leadership Roles in the Middle East and North Africa project. The prioritization of gender equality has the potential to make a real difference in fostering more inclusive societies.
5: But even with unprecedented resources, challenges still remain. Development assistance efforts will have to contend with the COVID-19 pandemic in the short and possibly medium term. The crisis has the potential to hinder or even reverse progress. A September 2020 United Nations report suggested that the pandemic could result in the loss of the fragile gender equality gains achieved over the past 25 years. Policymakers and practitioners have a big challenge ahead of them.
4: In this, the final episode in our series on gender equality and federalism, we'll hear how two federal countries, Canada and Switzerland, approach development assistance to advance gender equality. What principles and practices underpin their initiatives? What results are being achieved? And what work is being done specifically in the area of governance and gender?
5: We will also explore the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on women and girls and gender equality and how donors are responding to the situation. Turning to the future we will consider the most important barriers to advancing global gender equality in the next few years.
4: But before we get to what the future holds, first we need to understand the relationship between governance, gender equality and sustainable development.
5: The connection between gender equality and governance is recognized by the development assistance approaches of both Switzerland and Canada. For Ursula Keller, senior policy advisor and head of the governance unit at the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation, the two are inextricably linked.
3: For us, it is clear that effective, accountable, inclusive governance is critical for achieving gender equality. Or one might say vice-versa. If we have high gender inequality, this is often an indicator of weak governance as well. Good governance and gender equality are intrinsically linked. It's like two sides of a coin.
4: As Ursula explains, recognising the relationship between gender and governance enables development practitioners to address both individual and broader structural barriers that obstruct progress towards equality.
3: With my two perspectives as previously gender advisor and now governance advisor, I feel as gender advisor, we always had to fight a little bit. There's the tendency to look at the individual women as the main focus. And I always had to push a little bit. Yes, it's about this woman, but it's about the context and the structures she's living in. It's the enabling framework that we have to look at. We cannot just look at women. While with governance, I have the impression we start with these structures and the enabling frameworks, and sometimes we lose sight a little bit of the citizens and the men and the women and the children and the old and the young people as individuals inside. So I think it's really bringing these two perspectives well together, and they both depend on each other.
5: For Mark Banzet, Director of Natural Resources and Governance at Global Affairs Canada, governance and governance mechanisms have the capacity to support gender equality within societies.
0: What I would say is that governance frameworks, that is frameworks that determine political and social relations and power dynamics in society, can promote gender equality. For example, Legislatures can promote the legal empowerment of the poor, women and other groups living in vulnerable situations by passing laws that promote access and inclusion of such groups. This can include issues like simplifying the procurement of legal documents, certificates, property titles and easing procedures for the claiming of assets. This is actually, I think, a fairly well-documented challenge, and I would draw attention to the World Bank's doing business report, for example, among others in this regard. The impact is not just in dealing with business, but this is very fundamental to realizing the rights of women and girls around the world. And this is because women are legally discriminated against in more than 150 countries around the world. In fact, even in Canada, it's within my lifetime that the last legal discrimination was abolished. If my understanding is correct, it was that women were not allowed to be uh, submariners in our Navy, the Royal Canadian Navy. Even in Canada, it's not a distant history, but it just it underscores the importance of working to address issues of discrimination. And these are fundamentally governance.
4: The Swiss approach to improving both governance and gender equality is twofold. Focusing on supporting governance institutions to deliver services on the one hand and on educating citizens about their rights on the other.
3: In our work, we frame governance kind of from a demand supply framework, or we call it also human rights-based framework, so that we have the duty bearers. So we want to strengthen state and the capacities of states. To be responsive, to be accountable, to deliver services to the citizen and that citizens there's of course there are always women and men and many other groups. And on the other side, we want to empower citizens, and that is again as right holders, women and men as right holders to claim their rights, to hold governments accountable, to participate in decision making. It's these Bipolar approach that directs our governance work, working both with the so called duty bearers and the right holders. And I think there, of course, integrating gender means to look at the gender aspects both on the side of the duty bearers, the state institutions, the ones to deliver services and provide the rights and protect the rights, and on the side of the citizens to empower them to have them.
5: And Switzerland also emphasizes incorporating gender equality considerations into the basic functions and operations of governance.
3: It's also kind of mainstreaming into the policymaking and public sector management more broadly. How does the public sector work for women? There we have to make the analysis of what are the services that a government, be it on national or local level, what are the services? Are they conducive to gender equality? Do women have equal access? Are they able to afford those services? Are they involved in the planning, in the decision making about these public sector policies? In short, it's really about mainstreaming gender or having a good gender analysis on both the public sector management and policymaking, how to make that gender responsive, and at the same time ensure voice and empowerment of women as citizens to really participate in all this.
4: In recent years, Canada has become a prominent leader in advancing gender equality among the international donor community. As Mark explains, gender equality and women's empowerment is integrated into all aspects of Canada's development activity through an explicitly feminist approach.
0: I think the best place to start is our feminist international assistance policy. And this policy is based on the belief that all should benefit from the same rights and opportunities for success. And in this regard, Canada is committed to promoting human rights, gender equality, diversity and inclusion. We must increase our efforts globally to adopt an inclusive response to the global situation that takes into account the very specific challenges that we're facing. And what I mean by that is that women's full participation in leadership and decision making are fundamental elements of democratic societies that are inclusive and sustainable. And that collective efforts are essential if we want to accomplish real changes. For example, at the 2018 Charlevoix G7 Summit, Canada led G7 partners in committing to meaningful action to improve the lives of women and girls around the world, endorsing the Charlevoix commitment to end sexual and gender-based violence, abuse, and harassment in digital contexts, and the Charlevoix Declaration on quality education for girls, adolescent girls, and women in developing countries. Canada supports women's networks and initiatives such as the Women Foreign Ministers Meeting held in Canada for the first time in Montreal two years ago, and To further help for transformational change regarding the engagement of women in UN peace operations, Canada advanced the ELSI initiative on women in peace operations.
5: In addition to providing leadership on gender equality initiatives within the international development community, Canada also plays an important role in supporting local women's rights organizations and networks in developing countries, helping them to build local capacity.
0: Just to add more to the list, In 2017, Canada announced the Women's Voice and Leadership Program, which is a $150 million initiative over five years to support local women's rights organizations and networks in over 30 developing countries and regions. This program helps to address the significant funding gap experienced by these organizations through financial and capacity building support to strengthen their institutional capacity, improve their management and sustainability, and promote network and alliance building. I guess just to kind of put everything together, our feminist international assistance policy really creates the framework that we need to put women and girls at the heart and gender equality at the heart of our efforts. And this is really based in the realization that if we work with women and girls, we promote gender equality, that we are promoting human rights, and that we are working often with the most marginalized and vulnerable people. And that by including women and girls, that we are going to have the best impact in terms of experience and achievements that really putting women and girls at the centre is important.
4: Switzerland has a strong commitment to both gender equality and governance. These distinct but cross-cutting elements are crucial to achieving the United Nations 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs.
3: I think for Switzerland, there's a strong commitment to gender equality as indispensable for achievement of the SDGs Indeed, the Agenda 2030. Switzerland at that time strongly supported this twin-track approach of having standalone SDG 5 on gender equality and women's empowerment, and also mainstreaming of gender throughout the 17 SDGs. And actually the same, we would say, goes for governance with the SDG 16 and governance as a lever and transversal team to actually achieve all SDGs.
5: And Switzerland has a long history of integrating gender equality into its development, assistance and foreign policy.
3: SDC, the Swiss Development Corporation, has actually a gender policy dating back to 2003, when there wasn't an Agenda 2030. yet. It was more in the frame of the MDGs at that time.
4: The Millennium Development Goals.
3: And of course, the post-Beijing 1995 approach of gender mainstreaming. And there, it was firmly established that gender equality is key for sustainable development. Gender mainstreaming as the tool and instrument to do so. Later on, this commitment was recently followed by broader foreign policy gender strategy that incorporates the development cooperation, but goes beyond. That really also includes a broader commitment to gender equality of. Switzerland's foreign policy as a whole. And that builds on three thematic pillars, mostly political empowerment, economic empowerment, and prevention of violence against women. And again, the mainstreaming throughout FDFA's policy more broadly.
4: Switzerland also plays a role in facilitating cooperation on gender equality in multilateral forums.
3: Switzerland sees itself very much as a bridge builder, in the often polarized discussions in multilateral forums for example on issues around sexual and reproductive health and rights violence against women so in many ways Switzerland while having a clear commitment Switzerland in these multilateral forum for example on the commission on the status of women is more the bridge builder we do have i would say a strong gender commitment and strong policy but Switzerland wouldn't Necessarily call it a feminist policy, as does Canada, but probably that is more a matter of narrative and political culture.
5: Gender equality is therefore strongly embedded within Canada and Switzerland's development assistance approaches. But how does this translate into activity on the ground in developing contexts? To take just one example, Canada has had success with projects aiming to address child early and forced marriage in West Africa.
0: Canada partnered with Care Canada on a $3 million project to prevent child early and forced marriage in Mali and Benin. And by organizing and promoting community dialogue and social norms, Child early enforced marriage and the protection of girls, children, and adolescents in eight communities in Mali and eight in Benin, the project was able to bring positive change to local socio cultural norms related to child early enforced marriage. In Benin, the project was able to decrease the percentage of traditional authorities, locally elected officials, and religious leaders who defended the practice from 41% to 15%. Now, I would argue 15% is. Still too much. But in Ali, the number of targeted traditional leaders and influencers who could describe the negative consequences of child marriage grew from 25 to 65%. And again, we have to recognize that the world is sometimes a difficult place, but this is real progress, even if there's still a way to go on it.
4: Reflecting the country's own domestic political culture, Swiss development initiatives concerned with gender equality have a strong focus on the local level of government. Gender Equality has been integrated into local governance capacity development projects.
3: We have several programs on gender-responsive budgeting. Kosovo, Kyrgyzstan, Bangladesh, Bolivia. And usually this gender-responsive budgeting is integrated project lines as part of broader local governance programs. These are never standalone programs. The aim is there to promote gender equality and social inclusion more broadly and improve services through inclusive decision-making in and through public finance management. So it's really the public finance management as a venue and as an instrument. It's about mainstreaming budgetary processes more broadly, but with a focus on local-level governance. So we do it mostly on local-level governance, while, for example, UN Women has a strong focus on gender-responsive budgeting, which is more on a national level which then is much more policy level. But on local level, it's very close. It's this multiple access point, this proximity that comes into play. Doing gender responsive budgeting, there is, of course, there are technical aspects. So you need some kind of literacy in financial things. You have to have a certain understanding and awareness of how is a budget coming? How is actually decisions on how much money we spend on what, and that in a local community. Is this mostly on a new football stadium or do we have streetlights in the night and the community center and a library? Budgets represent needs and priorities of people. That means you need also people have a say and jointly discuss what are these priorities. So it is a lot about getting different groups of people, civil society, especially also women into these bargaining and decision process, educate on some of the technical issues and have women a say in these technical matters.
5: And the impact of a Swiss development assistance work in advancing gender equality at the local level is illustrated by examples from Bolivia, Bangladesh, and Kyrgyzstan.
3: In the Bolivia program, a local governance program, they established in legal counseling centers within the local government with public budget, not an NGO that provides the service, but actually provided by the local government through the local governance budgets. So a specialized unit that was responsible for legal advice and counseling for survivors of violence. In Other, like Bangladesh and Kyrgyzstan, you could see that as part of this participation in these public budget processes, women actually gained status and influence because they discussed or participated in the committees, because then there were different budget committees and they were a part of them. They brought in, they maybe developed projects they wanted to submit. So they gained understanding, influence, status, and later on got elected as local representatives of these governance areas. It is like a trigger for empowerment, but it also helps to take better into account the variety and the diversity of citizens' needs.
4: Canada's approach recognises the importance of working not just with politicians, officials, and institutions of government. Civil society organizations also have a crucial role to play in holding government to account and advocating for gender equality domestically and internationally.
0: Providing support to civil society organizations, particularly women's rights organizations, that perform an oversight role and act as a check and balance on the actions of government is really key. So it's great to have legislatures, that we can have laws, great laws, getting rid of discrimination that exists in government practices or in in law, again, Women need to be very active participants as advocates, uh, as parliamentarians, as the ones making the laws, that it needs to be really built from the ground up with the perspectives of women and girls. And there needs to be checks and balances from civil society.
5: Over the past 18 months, the COVID-19 pandemic has presented unprecedented health and economic challenges to governments all around the world. And in Mark and Ursula's view, there is no doubt that the crisis has had a disproportionate impact on women and girls.
0: COVID-19 has not been a gender-neutral crisis. The current global pandemic is worsening gender inequalities, and it risks compromising decades of progress in international development. And a lot of that progress has happened by raising the status of women around the world. Women, children, marginalized groups have been particularly affected.
3: I think everybody noted that with these crises, of course, the gaps and divides, the pre-existing social fault lines were just reinforced.
4: Evidence from Ethiopia indicates that the gender effects of the pandemic have exacerbated the inequalities between men and women. As Susana Molatu, gender specialist at the Forum of Federations, explains, this is reflected in increased violence against women and in women losing income.
2: I would like to mention and emphasise here the gender inequality challenges faced in the country as a result of COVID-19. Emerging evidences show that women and girls suffer from extreme and multifactorial complex negative impact because of the COVID-19 crisis. Gender-based violence has been reported as a major concern. It is increased during COVID-19. It depends economic social stress for families with restricted movement and social isolation measures. Many women are being forced to lock down at home with their abusers. At the same time, the essential service to support survivors of gender-based violence are being made inaccessible. While the data is at early stage, the number of rape cases and domestic violence in the country has increased by estimated 25 up to 30 percent. Different regional states have also reported early marriage cases that have been conducted as a result of school closures and girls are forced to drop out from the school. In the economic affair, also women are the majority workers in the informal sector with low income and little or no savings. Because of the lockdown related with COVID-19, many women lose income even for daily livelihoods.
5: A number of the measures introduced by governments to control the spread of COVID-19 have had unintended negative impacts on women. Lockdowns and school closures have increased women and girls' care responsibilities and in many cases have left them more vulnerable to violence and domestic abuse.
3: It's very clearly the pandemic and the measures that were required to manage the pandemic, the lockdowns. The economic disruption, lockdowns, meaning sitting at home with the children, home office, homeschooling, all those things, which were the measures that are required to manage the pandemic. Care is a big thing. If the public support system is all in lockdown, it means the whole care responsibilities cannot be outsourced anymore. That means the tendency, of course, was again that it will increase women's role in those care roles. There's, of course, the violence against women. I think there is a general consensus that it did increase because it increased the risk factors again with this withdrawal of the whole society into the private space. So there is just this more momentum and, and, and higher risk around increased violence against women and all forms of gender-based violence.
4: And alongside their care responsibilities, in many countries women make up a substantial proportion of the healthcare workforce responsible for treating COVID patients.
0: The global crisis has certainly put into sharp focus the burden that women and girls are expected to carry when it comes to, for example, caregiving responsibilities for their families and communities, and the additional risks that come from being on the front lines of health services. For example, nurses that are on the front lines. Uh, Women represent 70% of healthcare workers, but only 25% of senior leadership and decision making roles in the healthcare sector. In a case where there's people in the home all the time, an increased risk of sexual and gender-based violence, including online in the context of lockdown and social isolation. This is something that, unfortunately, is a reality now and will become even more exposed as we discover that COVID-19 isn't just a health crisis, it's also a governance crisis and a human rights crisis.
5: According to Ilana Tromka, the Director General of the Federal Senate of Brazil, The most damaging gender equality impact of the COVID-19 pandemic is on the education of girls.
1: First of all, we need to talk about education. And this is coming to be a very important issue in Brazil. We are inside the pandemic moment. And you know a lot of kids left the school. And we know for sure that the girls will come back in a lower number than the boys. More than this, we know, with the pandemic, we should stay home. And the schools were closed in Brazil for quite a year. And not everybody in Brazil can have a computer, can have internet. So we lost a year for the kids. And for the poorest was much worse than for the richest. So the public education, when the poorest study, it's... Quite destroyed. The challenge starts in education. Even the economic challenge starts in education. If these girls would stay home and do not study, if these teenagers during the pandemic got pregnant in a very young age, they won't be back in school and they won't study. And in the future, they will be housewives or They won't grow in their professionals because they won't be in school or universities.
4: The economic effects of the pandemic have also been damaging. In poorer countries, women are often the majority of workers in the informal economy. When lockdowns halt economic activity, they are left in a precarious situation.
3: The question about job losses, being out of business, losing economic opportunities... Women who have a big share of women in poor and developing countries work in the more informal sector. If there is a lockdown, the whole informal economy is basically from one day to the other. All those petty economic activities, trading, they basically from one day to the other you're out of job and then you don't have, in these contexts, unemployment benefits or insurance. All those in this informal economy, they're most vulnerable, they were most hit, and many, many of them
0: were women. Beyond the big picture, women also are facing particular socioeconomic threats, including disproportionate economic vulnerabilities and burdens. I mentioned the healthcare employment, but especially in developing countries. And then the same thing in terms of compromised access to, to reproductive health, to maternal health resources.
5: Coming back to governance, the extraordinary situation of the pandemic has led in some contexts to an erosion of civic rights and the shrinking of democratic spaces, which have negatively impacted gender equality.
3: In terms of the role of governance, what really works to manage such a crisis, you need strong leadership. And of course, in some contexts, it has really been misused, misused to oppress civic rights, space for civil society, undermine democratic processes, undermine political oppositions. I think there has been a lot of instrumentalization of the situation on one way. So the role of governance on how to protect women's rights, I think it's really the protection of the civic rights, because civic rights, they are women's rights.
0: The way out is really making sure and redoubling those efforts to make sure women and girls are included in decision-making about the pandemic and are involved to the extent possible in being part of the solution, because I think women and girls have lots of important contributions to make.
3: The role of governance is to reclaim the space for democratic governance, for democratic participation, for media freedom, for civil societies it's really important to make sure to protect those spaces and where they have been closed to try to reopen and protect those spaces because these spaces, there are also the spaces where women's organization can work, where women's human rights defenders can work, who are the most vulnerable, or women in media. To protect democratic space is really also protecting women's space and women's right.
4: For Ursula, Social accountability is crucial to advancing gender equality and ensuring that women and girls are able to exercise their rights.
3: Another point is to work on social accountability, strengthen social accountability initiative to reinforce the checks and balances. Because with this whole thing, you have, of course, this executive rule. So basically the checks and balances are weakened or for a certain given time, they're legally put out of function. In established democracies, you can handle that. But in other contexts, I think it's important to reclaim all those checks and balances through the power sharing of different institutions. And for gender equality, I think it's really also the social accountability that is very important to hold governance, local governance, accountable, to provide services, to be the watchdog for actions, to establish and re-establish these mechanisms.
5: The strain that the pandemic has placed on public finances also has the potential to limit progress on gender equality. Even pre-COVID, the availability of funding was an important component in advancing the rights of women and girls in federal and decentralized contexts. Dr. Christine Forster, Associate Professor at the University of New South Wales and author of the forum's Gender Equality and Federalism Report, explains why.
2: Fiscal support is very important in federal systems in terms of all of these initiatives to further gender equality and women's rights. The ability to innovate, for policy transfers to happen, for multiple access points to be successful, you need local governance to have the capacity to further all of these initiatives and policies and so forth.
4: During the recovery from the pandemic, reduced government budgets and competing priorities at local level may have an impact on services for women and girls.
3: Also important is to secure public spending and finance on local level. We are going, of course, now into big public debt Because all the countries invest a lot, there will be a lot of debt, and it remains to be seen what are the effects on local public budgets. How much taxes will be reduced? There is less income, there will be less taxes. So the distribution of the resources and how much public budgets will suffer. If we have reduced public budgets on a local level, that means less means for school, health centers, community centers, all those things that are crucial to women and girls' life—that That is the most complicated one because it's, of course, not just in the hands of one local government.
5: The challenges of COVID-19 are exacerbating the existing barriers to gender equality. How can the international donor community adjust its approach to support gender equality in development assistance? Canada is applying a gender lens to its COVID response efforts.
0: In response, Canada has focused its international assistance to respond to COVID-19 not only to fight the health outbreak, but also to mitigate its impact on gender equality. Canada, we remain committed to advancing gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls, which is really at the forefront of our feminist international assistance policy and have applied a gender-focused through the the lens of a gender-based analysis plus, so an intersectional gender-based analysis of our COVID response at home and abroad. This is Forum Fedcast.
4: The international community remains committed to supporting the empowerment of women and girls through the Sustainable Development Goals and their own bilateral initiatives. At the same time, advancing gender equality may be more difficult in the context of pandemic recovery. As we look to the future, we ask the guests from our gender equality series to reflect on what they anticipate will be the most important gender equality and governance issue over the next five years.
5: Escalating political instability and violence in Ethiopia has the potential to have serious impacts on women and girls in the country.
2: I think the most important gender equality and governance issues that will be faced in Ethiopia may be unpredictable, but in most likely scenario, post election conflict or tension could be the main gender equality and governance issue in my opinion. Since Prime Minister Abiy's appointment, a number of reforms have been observed, but it has accompanied by ethnic tensions, violence and the breakdown of law and order. Women and girls have been disproportionately affected by these situations. Evidence shows that women and children account the highest number those displaced in border clash. Gender-based violence cases such as rape have been reported in the recent violence instance in this country. The country still has a long way to go to see unity, restore the rule of law and sustainable peace and stability. But based on this situation, I can say the post-election conflict and violence could be the main governance issue. That may have also a number of gender-specific challenges. Gender-based violence, displacement, this can be the most important challenge.
4: Mark believes that, in the context of recovery from COVID-19, the most important challenge which must be addressed is sexual and gender-based violence.
0: The first thing is to get our own domestic houses in order, and I think that federalism in Canada is going to play an important role in that in Canada in terms of addressing, for example, the the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, the dual role of federal and provincial and territorial governments in the context of the delivery of health care and in managing health, managing the economic aspects of the crisis, creating a framework for inclusion, a framework for dealing with the economic consequences. When it comes to really that international, there are a lot of pressing challenges under the big framework of COVID-19, because I don't think we can look at anything in the next five years without thinking about how do we get out from what we've been under. Protecting women from violence, sexual and gender-based violence is really the biggest challenge and one that's completely abhorrent and that needs to be addressed. There is no cultural context where it's appropriate around the world to engage in sexual and gender-based violence. It's within the power of governments and civil society to address this through a mix of legislative action, advocacy, policy challenges to tackle this. And there's a need to reach out on the basis of our shared humanity. Looking at the fullness of human experience as both an opportunity to celebrate diversity and confront discrimination looking at it through the lens of gender, race, socioeconomic status, among others. You need to have a big picture and then look at it from and gain the perspectives of women and girls in this to ensure that it's addressed equitably. If we can come out of this pandemic having shone some light on the need to address sexual and gender-based violence, something good will come out of it.
5: Political polarization and democratic backsliding and the impact this can have on women's rights are Ursula's main concerns.
3: I think if I look at it through really the governance lens, to me, this political polarization that we are facing at the moment that goes across North and South, this democratic backslide, the shrinking space, pressure on civil society, that is also a very, very big challenge facing for gender equality. All those shrinking space, all those trends to more authoritarian systems is also a threat to women's rights and gender equality. In general, I would say inclusive, pluralist, equal societies, they also protect best or promote best gender equality. And if we have systems that close in that are authoritarian, this political polarization, I think this is really a threat and leaves way to stronger backlash again to the hard fought women's rights. The whole digitalization, the power that actually goes through digital information, media, the scope of control that is possible, I think these all will have effects also for gender equality and women's rights. Of course, there's opportunities with it, but there are many, many great risks related to harassment on the internet, in the social media. There are many things linked to this general trend of polarisation and democratic
0: backslide.
4: And so, as we work towards a more gender-equal future, what principles can we take with us on the journey?
0: Inclusive governance is vital to ensure that no one is left behind.
3: Going local... Is almost in the DNA of Switzerland, but we really have to make sure that it works as well for women.
2: In Ethiopia, a positive social and cultural environment is needed for gender-sensitive federal governance. There are exciting opportunities to further gender equality in federal and decentralized systems. We just have to step up and capitalize on them.
1: I believe in the future but I believe that I can change the future.
4: That was Forum Fedcast. Huge thanks to our guests in this episode and throughout the entire Gender Equality Series. Dr. Christine Forster, Ilana Tromka, Susana Malatu, Ursula Keller, and Mark Banzett. For the previous episodes in the series, just search Forum Fedcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Podbean. The Forum's Gender Equality and Federalism Report is available to download for free via the Forum website at forumfed.org. That's forumfed.org, which also hosts a library of other resources on federal and multi-level governance. You can find us on Twitter at ForumFed and as Forum of Federations on Facebook and YouTube. We want to hear from you. Get in touch with the podcast by emailing podcast at forumfed.org. And tell us what you think about gender equality and multi level governance. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and give us a review on your platform of choice. This episode was written and hosted by Diana Chabenowa and me, Liam Whittington. It was produced by Asmus Ruby and Liam Whittington. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Forum Fedcast.